So curious what the most interesting adjective that you heard as you were introducing yourself to your neighbor. Ruthless. Wow. I had a hard time thinking of an R. What's other? That's, that might win. Yeah. Any other interesting? What's that? There you go. That one works. Any other interesting adjectives that you guys heard from your neighbor? Serious. Nice, nice. Well, welcome to our session today. We're talking about pastoring addicts in your church. I like this to be really interactive. So if you have questions or thoughts or input, uh, don't be shy to raise your hand or just yell stuff out. I'm used to teaching at Teen Challenge with lots of interaction in a classroom, and so I don't like to just talk endlessly. I learn more from you guys than I do from anybody else, and so feel free to, to throw out questions or thoughts. So my journey at Teen Challenge is kind of unique. I'm actually moved to the cities to plant a church. And I thought I would be doing pastoral ministry for, you know, the rest of my life. And about two years into the church plant, I needed a part-time job because, you know, church plans are, you know, take a while to get going sometimes. And so I got a job at Teen Challenge with the teen boys. If you know Minneapolis, uh, you'll know where Franklin and Chicago are. That's where the teen boys were at the time, which is a terrible place to have teen boys in the heart of the city by a drug-infested park. And uh, so that was the, my first exposure Teen Challenge was at this Teen Boys Center. And I recognized pretty quickly that I'm not called to youth ministry. Uh, I learned so many things in those first few months. I wish I could actually unlearn. Uh, I will never forget van rides with the teens. I, I just, it was quite the experience. So I knew that wasn't going to be a very long spot for me. About six months in, got a job as a chaplain with the men's program. And about Three or four years after that, got a job as the director for the state for Teen Challenge. And about two years into my chaplain role, I had a light bulb moment. Because I thought I was called here to plant a church, and so that's what I thought I was going to do. And about two years into my chaplain role, I had a light bulb moment one day where I realized that God tricked me. <laughs> that he got me here to plant a church, but that really wasn't the long-term goal. That really what he was calling me to was to Teen Challenge. Because I realized that although I loved church ministry, there's just nothing like working with people in addiction. Uh, if you do church ministry, you know that for the most part, church folks can tend to present themselves as having it all together and being, you know, don't want to talk about their stuff. And that's not true at Teen Challenge. Because we all know why they're there. They have an addiction problem. They have other issues to work on. And so there's just a rawness and a realness that I had not seen in church ministry before. And there was something really attractive to that for me of just the hunger and the desperation for change. When clients come to Teen Challenge, it's usually their last stop. We have clients tell us that they, they avoided coming to Teen Challenge because they knew if they came to Teen Challenge, they would have to change. That they were going to have to make some changes and they didn't want to do that. And so they push it off as long as possible. And so when they come to us, it's not because they've been using for a year or two typically talking about chronic long-term addiction. And so there's a rawness and a hunger and a desperation and just this, this recognition of need for Jesus and something different. And my favorite thing to watch is literally to watch their eyes come alive. Like we have a couple of staff members here and, and it's like when you watch the, our clients in short term, there's just this hopelessness and this discouragement and they've kind of given up and a few months into the program as they as they meet Jesus and start to get sober it literally can watch their eyes light up again that's why I do what I do is for them to see Jesus and grow and so it is hands down the best job on the planet but most of my learning of addiction has come on the job because I did not grow up in an addiction family don't have addiction in my past and so I had to learn on, 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 the, on the go as I was getting into this job uh, I was thinking about this yesterday. My only real exposure to addiction was in high school. Uh, we had this group of kids that would meet at the back door of the school for, for like lunch break or, or like a recess, whatever, to smoke. And I thought as a freshman in high school, that was just unbelievable that these kids were meeting to smoke at the back door of the high school. Like for me, that was like addiction. And we called them the hoods for some reason. I don't know why they didn't actually wear hoods, but they usually wore black. And, and that was my first exposure to addiction. So when I got to Teen Challenge, it was an eye-opening experience to learn all 
that there is to know about addiction. So what I'm going to share with you today is on-the-job learning. And the goal today, it's called pastoring addicts in your church. This is not just for like lead pastors, because as a lead pastor, you might not be able to have a relationship with everybody in your church. But for, for youth pastors, for kids pastors, there's just some things I think will be helpful to you today. We're going to start off with a verse, though, that for me captures the heart of Teen Challenge and really why we're doing what we're doing. And this is Jesus talking about the people. And it's just, it's the most curious verse to me because whenever in my past I have questions, does Jesus, does God understand what we go through in our struggles? This verse clarifies it for me. It says, when he saw the vast crowds of people, his heart was deeply moved with compassion because they seemed weary and helpless like wandering sheep without a shepherd. And there's a couple of really interesting pieces of that verse the one is that he recognizes that they were weary and helpless. Before I came to Teen Challenge, I had a lot of stereotypes of addiction and addicts, mostly from movies and television and just things I thought, that they were just bad people, that they enjoyed doing what they were doing, that there was something wrong with them. Like, why would you choose to do that? And as I worked at Teen Challenge and as this verse kind of began to sink in, I realized, wait a minute, they're doing what any sheep would do if it didn't know who its shepherd was. It would just wander aimlessly. And so it began to develop a really deep compassion in my heart for people trapped in addiction because I realized they're just wandering. I had some other stereotypes of people in addiction and I began to realize the more people I saw come into recovery that they're just like everybody in this room. They're just like all of us and maybe had some different choices than we did. Some different things happened to them, but they're just like we are. And so I started to see them as wandering sheep without a shepherd. And then the part of this that stands out the most to me is that it says Jesus was deeply moved. If you'd ever question, does God understand? Does he care? Does he know? That verse gives us a really clear picture of how God sees all of us, but also in my context, folks in addiction, he was moved with compassion. So there are days at Teen Challenge where it gets a little crazy and the stress level's high and people are struggling. And I, I come back to this verse as a kind of an anchor for me of, no, don't forget why we're here. Don't forget that our job is to show compassion for people. Uh, one of the most common comments we get from clients when they come into short term is they think we're all crazy because we laugh and smile and we love them even though we don't know them yet. And I think we're on something. And I think that's what that is. It's the compassion piece. It's that for the first time in our, many of our clients' lives, they're experiencing some sort of compassion. As you look at that verse, is there a, a phrase or a word or even like an emotion that pops into your mind as you think about Jesus looking over the crowd and being moved with compassion? Anything stand out to you from that? Don't be shy. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. He identified with the amenity of the people. That's good. Anybody else? Yep. Yeah. So the compassion helps draw you in? The compassion will deal with things definitely, even though they won't understand it at first. Sure. It makes no sense, right? Because yeah. it's not of the world. That's why, yeah. I work with um, a lot of sexual trafficked <coughs> women in my job. And, you know, just not the weariness of not knowing what else to do and not having the worthiness right. to be accepted in the world. Yep. You bet. That's good. That's really good. I think in John 3.16, God so loved that he gave, not, not, did not come to judge, yep. but save him so compassionate as we are more than him. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, it can't be to fix people. I learned that early on, too. It can't be to fix them. It has to be based out of compassion for them to be who they are in Christ. All right, we're going to talk about some root causes 
that we're going to talk about some ways to identify people in addiction or might be struggling with addiction. And then lastly, we're going to talk about how to approach people. But we're going to talk about some root causes first. These are four pretty common root causes. Uh, and the first one is trauma. The, the 66% there is from our own internal research of clients who in our program over the years who have experienced some sort of trauma. Uh, it's probably higher than that because there's, you have to self-reveal this, but at least 66% have some sort of deep trauma, which could be physical abuse, could be sexual abuse, could be mental abuse. Uh, we'll talk more about rejection in a bit. It's something traumatic, likely before they were 12 years old, that severely impacted their lives. Uh, I think that in working with clients, I almost always assume that there was some level of trauma. Whether that's a, also I should mention divorce, a death in the family as a kid, a parent died, a sibling died, all kinds of things could fit into trauma. And, and this is why I love our program because this might sound strange coming from a faith-based Christian program, but our goal is not sobriety. Our, that's the outcome. Our goal is a passionate walk with Christ that leads to sobriety. And the key to that for a lot of our clients is facing trauma, which is honestly why our clients have been to 10, 15, 20 treatments is they got sober. That's beautiful. But they never actually dealt with the core reasons for using. And our, our long-term program is 13 months, and there's no magic to that number. It's just a long period of time to work on stuff. I always tell our clients, it's not because Jesus is slow to fix us. We just need time. Because if you've been suppressing pain and hurt and trauma for literally, in some cases, decades with our clients, even when you come to Jesus, it doesn't open up right away. You've got to learn to trust your team. You've got to learn to trust your chaplain, trust the Lord to begin to open those things up. And so it takes time for this to happen. Um, at Teen Challenge, we have a care team for our clients. Each one has a chaplain. They have an LADC, a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. Most also have a mental health therapist. And together, we come together to work on those core issues of trauma, of pain, and of abuse. Second one, and this is probably uh, a piece of the first one, but we put it as a separate one just because it's a key one is rejection. Uh, this could come from a variety of sources. It could come from a divorce that a child feels like they weren't wanted. It could come from, literally I've had clients tell me their parents told them, I should never have had you. I wish I never had you as a kid. It could come from being bullied in school. It could come from the trauma stuff we already talked about. But most of our clients have experienced some sort of rejection, which is why the compassion piece we talked about feels so weird. They literally don't know how to process someone that actually cares for them in a non-transactional basis. Almost all of our clients have been in transactional relationships of, of quote-unquote love, where they were either abused or used or traded services for substances, and so they're used to a transactional relationship with people. When they come to Jesus and they meet our crazy Jesus-loving staff, they realize, wait a minute, they just love me because of who I am? Like, that's a really strange concept for our clients. And it's one of the key ways that they heal, rejection. Number three is mental health. It is true that most of our clients have some sort of mental health issue. Now, that could be as, as basic as depression, could be bipolar, could be multiple personalities, could be all kinds of things, but most of our clients have some sort of mental health diagnosis could be PTSD. A lot of our clients have PTSD, especially those who worked in the sex trade, things like that, or who were physically abused by parents or whatever. Uh, mental health is a big piece of it. A lot of our clients self-medicated this through substances. And so one of our goals is to get them on healthy medications, but also to begin to work on the trauma and rejection, because in many cases, once those root trauma issues are healed, the mental health issues began to clear up. Can you imagine many of our clients being in 10, 20, 30 years of abusive relationships? Of course, you're gonna have mental health issues. And so as they began to heal mentally, emotionally, and physically, a lot of those things began to resolve themselves. 
And number four, family history. This is one I really wasn't aware of when I started, is the legacy of addiction in families. Um, those of us in the church world would call this generational curses or strongholds. Uh, this is a real thing for our clients. When I ask them to raise their hand if they have siblings or parents or grandparents or extended family who are in addiction, uh, probably 85% of clients raise their hand. Because once addiction takes root, Satan holds on to that stronghold in their lives. And for a lot of our clients, they didn't really stand a chance to not be in addiction. We have clients whose parents taught them to use, who shot meth with them, shot heroin with them, used meth with them, smoked with them, drank with them. And so they really didn't even have a chance to not fall into addiction. And so family history is a big thing to break through. And um, we do a lot of prayer ministry work around this one of breaking off strongholds and, and forgiveness work and, and really allowing the Lord to plant new uh, healthy beliefs in them. But those are probably the four key root causes of rejection. There are other ones too, but for us, these are probably the top four. Any questions about any of those or thoughts or input about any of those four or other things that maybe you've noticed as you've worked with folks in addiction? Hmm. And I realized uh, a wonderful Pastor St. John said, we can't help people who don't want help. And, but I, I felt free of that. Sure. I felt like, how can I relate? I was thinking of your story. Yep. With the yeah. Doing and you didn't have these issues. Yep. Yep. That's good. Did you have your hand up? Um, when you were talking about the trauma with the, one, the addictions, the people with addictions that I deal with, I tell them, they were like trash compactors. Hmm. We have a problem, we don't deal with it. Yep. And so we push it down, then we get another problem hmm. on top of that problem, and we push it down. Yep. Until finally the trash compactor just gets so full that we Yeah. It's a good metaphor. Yeah. That's good. Anybody else? Thoughts of any of these or questions about them? Any it's the metaphor of the only thing you should stop is a Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Layer after layer after layer. That's good. Uh, a lot of people at the church uh, like have these issues. Some people come to the church like to have these issues addressed, and a lot of people are uh, it's no resources too much at different churches that people can go to, so they kind of leave it out frustrated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is like something that we're trying to implement in our church. That's great. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person in long-term recovery who experienced homelessness too, but I, I'm also a, a addiction counselor now. Yeah. So we try to help implement these services and like Route 25 and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's awesome. At the church uh, to address these issues for people who are experiencing addiction. That's awesome. Praise God. That's great. Yeah. Sure. You know, and try to catch up. And I think it's finding after years of being in that it's not a transactional relationship. Hmm. But then they've also had, we have a relationship the other way where, uh, well, I'll come to your church and I'll try to promote your church mm -hmm. and, and tell people about it. And then you give me money if I need sure. it or if yep. you're in need, you know. Um, so I don't know. I just, yeah, I really like that approach. Yep. Yeah. Who? Are you still able to help them? I mean, does it really have to be pressurable then? Yeah, it's a great question. So when our clients come in, they know it's a faith-based program in, in long term. Short term, they can opt into a faith-based track. It's our clinical treatment program, like 30 to 90 days. 
but the long-term program is a faith-based program, so they know that coming in. That doesn't mean they want the faith part, they just opt into they're going to be in a faith-based program. They, we don't force them to pick Jesus, obviously, right? I would say that the clients I've seen be successful long-term are the ones who have a deep relationship with Jesus. You can be sober for, it, I've seen that happen, but it's pretty rare. Long-term healthy sobriety. I would say for the clients who are resistant to Jesus, our goal is simply just to love them anyway and love them to Jesus. I'm convinced that Jesus' love is that good. Like, if we actually as the church love like Jesus taught us to, like that verse I had up earlier, there would be no issue with people pushing away from Jesus. So in, in that case, our role is simply to love like, as best as we can like Jesus did and hope that eventually they're worn down by that. I know that when they're rejecting, it's because of they're afraid that at some point the shoe is going to drop. And when they do that next thing, we're going to go, nope, sorry, I can't love you now. Like, I'm convinced that is what it is for most of our clients. And so consistent, long-term, as best as we can, love like Jesus is what makes the difference. Can we help them? Yes, they can get sober, but not fully without Jesus. Does that answer your question? That's a good question. One of the problems with that, too, is that those, the people that come in that don't know Jesus or maybe have had some kind of church experience, mm -hmm. you're having to break through that oh. judgmental oh, yeah. thing Yeah. Yeah. Quick story about that. So one of my very first clients uh, in as a chaplain, they had this project they did in one of the levels where they have to dig into some really tough stuff and begin to work on the trauma and all the things that Lord wants to heal. And so we were meeting and uh, on the section that was asking like things that you know you needed to confess, he wrote, can't talk about it. And of course, as a chaplain, I'm like, well, what is that thing? Like, what's the thing? It's like, I can't tell you. So, well, you know, why, why can't you tell me? He said, well, if I tell you, you're going to think differently of me. And I said, well, I won't, but I'm going I'm to give you freedom. You don't have to, but I just, I know that whatever it is, you need to get it out. And so we sat there for what seemed like about an hour and a half in absolute silence. It was probably closer to 10 minutes, but... <laughs> Absolute silence, because I could literally see his face, like, wrestling with, do I tell him or not tell him? And I just knew it was a really holy moment. We needed just to sit there and wait for it to happen. And he finally told me. And my first thought was, I didn't say this out loud, by the way, is that's it? Like, I thought he'd killed, like, 50 people or something. Based on how he was wrestling. And I realized something in that moment, that Satan traps us with the, uh, with anything he can use to keep us trapped in our sin and addiction. And this guy was convinced he could never tell this thing because he'd be rejected. And when I didn't reject him, when I still loved him anyway, it was a turning point for him. Because when, when love meets that trauma and there's no rejection or no judgment, it changes everything. And this, the stuffing thing is they're afraid to share that. And that's why they get, you get sicker and sicker and sicker because what if I tell and I get rejected? That's why we can't do that. And I'm telling you, there are times in my office where I have to really watch my facial expressions because there are things I've been in confession with that are super intense. I can't respond in any way that looks like shocker or surprise. It can only be receiving, listening, forgiving, and loving. And that's hard some days. Shelly's nodding her head. She worked with the wind for years in our center, and uh, it's, it's tough, but you, it's, it's, that's where Jesus has to come in and help us with that, right? Now, the one more thing about stuffing, and we'll move on, is when the substance is gone, which stuffs emotions, emotions go crazy. And this is not meant to be stereotypical, but in the women's center, this is most obvious, because guys tend to even still stuff in the program. There's crazy emotions in the women's center on different days. But nothing is masking those emotions anymore. And of course it gets messy. That's why I love it, by the way. It gets messy and weird and tense. But for the first time, our clients are learning how to cope with healthy emotions and situations without a substance. So those are four key things. The next thing we're going to talk about is some signs to watch for. Here's a little video to set this up for us. It's not always obvious that someone you know or love is abusing 
drugs or alcohol. Here are the typical signs of addiction. Pay attention and you might be able to help before it's too late. Physical signs may include a change in appearance with inappropriate, sloppy or dirty clothing and an obvious lack of interest in self-care. An extreme shift in weight, enlarged or small pupils, bloodshot eyes, slurred speech, insomnia, and unusual body odors. There are psychological and behavioral signs to be aware of as well, like increased difficulties at school or work, financial issues where they're constantly broke and asking for money, extreme mood swings, including anxiousness, emotional outbursts and irritability, tendency to withdraw from people, and unexplained paranoia. They may also be highly defensive, particularly when confronted with the subject of substance abuse. Other things to watch for include spoons with burn marks, syringes, rolled paper, e-cigarettes, pipes, pills, and lots of lighters laying around. Do their water bottles or coffee thermoses smell like alcohol? Does their car or bedroom have an unusual odor to it? If there is someone in your life who needs help fighting addiction, there is hope. Addiction. All right, so here's some signs. This is kind of a summary of that little video. These are physical things to watch for. Uh, the key part of all of these is change. Something dramatically different. And in most cases, it's a pretty quick thing to observe. So change in appearance, clothing. I would add to that uh, darker clothing, like darker colors, maybe strange slogans on a t-shirt, things like that. Um, decrease in appetite or a lot of eating could be the opposite of that. Weight loss, pupils look different, either dilated or, or, in, or, or, or smaller. Uh, physical signs to watch for. Uh, some of these we might sort of ignore as a change in just, maybe, like, maybe they're a little depressed, or maybe there was a death in the family, and there's some of these that might happen naturally as people go through grieving and depression. The thing to watch for, this is only one of the signs we'll talk about, but is to be alert to those things. I learned that I would tend to dismiss things because I wanted to believe the best. And I'm pretty trusting by nature. And so I discovered early on that I had a tendency to overlook things that I didn't want to believe it was true. Now I try to ask the questions that I need to ask. Even if it's going to be fine, I want to at least know, right? I'm going to take the time to ask the questions. A couple more signs physically. Uh, bloodshot eyes, slurred speech. Again, these are key differences. And this is going to mean that you probably know the person fairly well or have been around them enough to notice these differences. In our program, we certainly are around them all the time. We can notice these pretty quickly if they happen to use in the program. But for someone out in, in the wild, by the way, as our clients call it, uh, it takes a just. I've learned all kinds of phrases. Yeah, we're norm. I'm a normie, by the way, because I didn't use, and I, I was. I live in the wild. Uh, is just look for differences and look for changes. Any thoughts about physical ones or any other ones that you guys would throw out that you've noticed? Yeah. And he was scared yep. he's like, Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So how did you eventually did you eventually figure out that something was going on? Well, we all knew he was going to do that. Okay. Sure. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, if they didn't have tremors before, for sure. Um, things like that. Uh, those are, yeah, for sure. Shaking or anything like weakness, feeling weak, tired all the time, things like that, for sure. Isolating. Yeah, that's one of the psychological ones we'll talk about. Here's a couple of other ones. Uh, he mentioned all of these. Um, these are more likely you're going to have to be in the person's physical space to see these things. But uh, needles, spoons, shoelaces, lots of lighters, 
paraphernalia, essentially. Might find them in cars as well or vehicles, uh, but also in homes. Could be in backpacks. We do check our clients' backpacks periodically. We do little screens just to look for things like this. Uh, but these might be some, some visible signs. Uh, another thing I should mention is, and this might seem simple or basic, but even noticing all of a sudden they're vaping. Uh, this is crazy. We have clients in all levels of addiction, but vaping is the hardest thing to give up for our clients. Nicotine is ridiculous. And so even looking for things like that, signs of vaping, signs of smoking where they didn't do that before. Let's talk about some psychological signs that, that, that uh, coupled with physical things you notice might be good indications. One is increased difficulties at work or school. Maybe you notice that a straight A student is now getting D's and doesn't care. Or was involved in extracurricular activities or sporting events and now is like backing off of all those things. Uh, basically a difference in, in, in passions or interests. Asking for money, mood swings, anxiety, lots of tension, uh, anxious, not fearful, those kinds of things, and angry outbursts. Uh, again, these can be caused by things like stress and grief and loss. There could be innocent, if you will, reasons for these, but I would pay attention to, did you say it like a teenager? Yeah, yeah that's right. Sorry, I read lips. Uh, that's funny. This could be a regular teenager. Exactly, right? This is why looking for multiple things. What, what seems off or different about this person at this particular time? That was funny. That's good. Uh, that's real world. And for an extended period, for sure. Yep, yep. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good question. Can I talk about you? Okay. So, uh, yeah, like, uh, there's, for sure. So, if the, if the person didn't have body odor before or strange smells and now all of a sudden do, whether that's breath or just overall body odor can be a sign of either, it's not necessarily a sign of the drug itself. Sure. This is more they're not taking care of themselves. And so, like, yeah, for sure. So I'm going to talk about Zach. I asked his permission. Zach's a graduate of the program. And uh, about a, two and a half years ago, uh, so Zach graduated, was working for us as an audiovisual intern. And about two and a half years ago, uh, during a, a week of ministry due called SEW, the first time I looked in the week, I knew something was wrong. And because he, he wasn't himself. He wasn't on time. He wasn't showing up. He was dodgy. He was cagey. He, he, was, he was different, right? And so I was debating, what do I do? What if it's innocent? What if he's just having a stressful week or, a, you know, who knows? But there was this nagging sense that something was wrong. And so we started, I think you know all this, started monitoring him at work and checking his badge when he was checking in and out and, and uh, did some random drug tests and things like that and discovered that he had relapsed. And what I learned from that is to not hesitate to ask the questions. Because again, I want to assume the best, but I, that's not reality. So I, I'm learning to err on the side of asking the question, even if it's a no, that they're fine. And actually, what I found is, for most, in most cases, they appreciate the ask. Because they're putting their hands up, hey, that was very triggering. That would be yep. I'm going to trigger yep. something. Yep, yep, for sure. It obviously depends on how you do it, but if it's a concern thing of, hey, are you okay? Like, is there something you want to talk about? I wouldn't go and say, hey, are you using? I wouldn't do it like that, but more, are you okay? Like, can we talk about stuff? It looks like you're a little bit anxious or fearful. That can be a way into it, but I would err on the side of asking, especially since in the last three or four years, uh, as the opioid, opioid epidemic has grown so vast in our state, especially around the country, and fentanyl has become to the forefront, I'm not going to take a chance of losing anybody else. We have lost way too many people in our, in our, in our ministry, in our extended family of alumni, that I'm going to err on the side of saving a life if I can. Yeah, that's good. I was going to say, too, you know, <clears throat> that relapse was two weeks long, and uh, I'd overdosed three times in that two weeks and nobody knew about So, like, just the uh, people in my life kind of rallying around me, uh, even the spying and the checking, you know, just I laugh about it now, but you know, like that type of stuff shows that I was loved in that situation. Mm -hmm. And then that's what really kind of told me it's like, you know, 
you know, that's what I prefer that over this miserable life. Yeah, you know, so that's for sure. Me, you know what I mean? For sure. So, I mean, if some people take it offensively, you know, that's going to happen. But um, if that means we can save a life for sure. process, somebody's going to receive it. Yep. So. That's good. Uh, Mary goes back to Jesus' compassion. Sure. We have to ask in compassion, for sure. not in judgment. For sure. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Huh. Coming out of the kitchen, there is no coincidence. That's good. That's good. You know, if they start to look like a duck and sound like a duck, yep. a duck. Yep, yep. <laughs> That's good. And so, to kind of just dial into that just a little bit more, what, what that means is, in order to know, in order to be able to have these conversations, you have to have, I think you have to have a relationship. Now, we, we obviously have a position at Teen Challenge where they're coming to get that from us, since so it's a little bit different. But with this guy, for example, we develop a relationship where if I sense something's off, I ask him about it. Like, and I don't care if he's offended. How you doing? Like, you seem off today. You know, are you upset about something? Like, I'll ask those questions. But I would always err on the side of asking, just because I'm tired of losing people. Yeah. 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 That was good. Yeah, I was going to mention that, and I forgot. Uh, all of a sudden, they're wearing a lot of long sleeve shirts in the in the summertime. Covering up track marks, absolutely. Yeah, or bruising from even abuse, for sure, absolutely, yeah. Yep, yep, that was, that's a big one as well. Irritability, lack of motivation, withdrawal, extreme shifts, paranoia. Uh, the paranoia is, this is not exclusively true to math, but those are on math, that's gonna be a big piece of it. Also, a lot of the fear comes from, a lot of fear and anxiety would come from a meth user. But uh, all of these are just indications that something's not quite right. Something's up. And, and a lot of them can have pretty innocent solutions or, or reasons. But in the case of folks in addiction, these are key ones to watch for. Thoughts about any of those? All right, let's talk about how to help. Uh, this is maybe, you mentioned this earlier, you know, if you don't come from addiction, it might feel like, well, what can I, how can I help someone in addiction if I haven't been in addiction myself? But what I've... What I've learned is that the common denominator is compassion and love. And even if I don't have that, that background, I can at least embrace and learn about it, but also come to them with Jesus. So how can I help? First of all, uh, show compassion. We've talked about this one a bunch already. Uh, there's something about compassion that drops defenses. Now, I've learned that it doesn't happen quickly, though. Again, especially with clients who've been in abusive relationships, uh, this seems weird to them. Uh, we have a, a, a short-term uh, ladies chaplain who is just the most bubbly, spirit-filled woman, and she loves Jesus, and she smiles all the time. And I've had multiple clients tell me personally that when they first met her, they were scared of her. Not because she's scary, but they thought, how can somebody be so full of joy and love? And so showing compassion uh, no matter what the situation is. Now, this goes back to a little bit ago we talked about I have to watch my facial expressions sometimes in conversations with, with clients. There are things that you'll hear from people in addiction as they unpack trauma and things that have happened to them where anger starts to rise up inside of me, not towards them, but towards what was done to them. That is probably the hardest part of my job is hearing what has happened to our clients and what led them to use and not physically reacting with anger towards that person. I'm not sure I'm there yet with the compassion to the folks who've done those things because there's some really horrible things our clients have gone through. That's something God and I are working on. As I hear things like that, I have to pray about that as well. But for sure, showing compassion for the person in the moment is huge. Uh, what are some ways that you have learned to show compassion to people, even in, in, in the things that you say or how you physically respond. What are some ways you've learned to show compassion? You know, about the perpetrators. Yeah. Usually they've done something. For sure. Yep. So, and that's, that was yep. a really helpful thing for me to quit shooting. Yep. Them, yep. That's that huge. They were most likely Yep. Yeah, I've done that before, though. I had a client 
Sure. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I've done that before too. Yeah. Can help break down a little bit of the walls too. For sure. For sure. That's good. What else have you learned? Just a hug when you don't know what to say. Yeah. It's just a hug. Yep. Showing love through a hug and through just gentleness. Sometimes a hug and I'm sorry that you had to go through that. You know, even silence is healing as well. Yeah. Yep. Yep. They don't, they don't always trust you. No. Right away. Takes time. When you say that, but. Yep. That's right. I think one of the greatest things I learned is there's a big difference between compassion and pity. Oh yeah. Mm. Well, well, how would you define the difference? Compassion is I love you no matter what. Right. Right. Pity is I just feel sorry for you. Mm. I don't really love you. Right. Yep. Yep. You know, that was a terrible thing you had to go through. It's a good description. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. <sighs> yep. Absolutely. 100% true. 100% true. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, I've apologized for the church many times of things that have happened. You bet, you bet. And one that just along the lines of showing compassion, I pulled it, and maybe someone will disagree, but the most compassionate thing I could do for him that night was pull him and his keys out of his car before he drove away. Because yeah. he got in the detox, and yep. he was at a level that he would have probably hit or killed somebody. Yep. That's compassion. It's, it's tough. That's right. People don't, they might not see it as compassion because sure. they don't get to do what they in the moment, yeah. yeah. That's a good example. It's a good example, yeah. So much speaking truth. Mm -hmm. You know, not, not sugarcoating things, just That's right. telling it as it is. And in, in love, truth in yep. love. But, but not, not trying to hide things and not trying to sugarcoat. That's right. That's good. One of the things I've heard recently personally is to validate the valid. Oh, that's good. Yep. It is what it is. That's good. That's a good phrase. Yeah. I think it works hard because I knew a guy who had a mental illness plus addiction. And he would play it, you know, like for two years I'd answer every call because he was going to commit suicide. And for sure. And it just was so hard. And I, I just had to block it because it wasn't receiving, you know what I mean? It's yep. so hard. But yep. I just, and it goes back again. It's always my fault. So yeah. you bring up Teen Challenge, now I want to do drugs. Yep. So. Yeah. So good point to talk about compassion overload and compassion fatigue. Uh, if you're in this as a line of work and you would know this in, in your work as well, um, there's a thing called there's a real thing of compassion fatigue or where you just feel exhausted. And so our team, we work a lot with good self-care, making sure that they're, you know, taking time off. They're, they're not doing work on the weekends. We even talk about things like on their way home from work, that there's maybe a, a spot on the road where they stop thinking about work or by the time they get in their garage, or they listen to a podcast or something to shift the mindset, or I'll carry it home with me if I don't do stuff like that. Otherwise, you don't have anything left for the next person tomorrow. So that is something to watch for, for those of us who are on the mercy side of things, have the gifts of mercy. Number two, don't shame or judge. This should sound obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me growing up in a pretty shame-based family in church, where it was always about what someone else was gonna think. This was hard for me to work through in my own journey with the Lord, and so I really do try to do this with our clients. But I, I don't even use things like, well, you shouldn't have done that. 
no shouldas or wouldas, or you could have done that different. Those are shame-based words. Instead, I'll ask a lot of questions to understand the whys and what happened. I, in fact, very early on with our clients, I won't give them much direction at all. I'll listen, I'll hear their story, I'll try to understand, and then we'll talk about next steps. But this one's key for our clients. The client I mentioned earlier, again, was convinced I was gonna judge him, right? If I would have responded in a way that wasn't Christ-like, I don't think he would have stayed. But just like Christ and the woman at the well, he told her shame story and she suddenly changed because what happens when clients share that difficult stuff is and it comes into the light is shame loses its power. I'm convinced that rejection and shame are two of the key weapons Satan loves to use against us because they work. They keep us trapped in sin and addiction. And so one of the most beautiful parts of our job is to let clients share those things in a safe place and discover freedom from shame and rejection and experience the love of Christ. So don't shame or judge. I think one of the greatest things that some of the addicts that I dealt with learned that was that there's no degree of sin. Oh, sin. gosh. My sin is no different than an addiction sin, right? Right. 100% true. That's good. That's good. Yeah. When I was sinning with my brother, um, I think he felt like he didn't deserve to get better. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> You bet. That was a hard one for me to grasp when we had clients tell me that, that I don't know if I deserve. I'm like, I didn't get that. Like, why wouldn't you? But they've been told so many negative things that they just think they deserve sobriety. That was, that was a hard one to work through for me. For sure. When do you have the, uh, like an intervention? I mean, it, it gets real, uh, I mean, when do you take time for, when you get people, sure. people to go? Yeah. Yep. So I don't have any experience with that, uh, other than what Zach described. When we, he was in, but he was around us all the time, right? I don't have any experience with that personally. I've heard of, you know, good and bad stories of that, but I think the, if if it's approached with compassion, I th- I think that would be more effective. But I have no experience whatsoever with that. Sorry. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was a professional, and they were, like, doing everything they knew how to do, and they did it right. It wasn't that they didn't do it right. But what happened was he felt pressured to go to treatment because we all confronted him at the same time. Sure. And it wasn't, like, a genuine heartfelt, like, I need to change. And so if they're not doing it for the right reason, which is himself, right. um, it's all just going to be toiling with no outcome. That's good. That's good. And he spent all this time in treatment faking it pretty much just for us. Um, it cost my parents a ton of money that they paid for, and then he came home and was only sober for one month, you know, and was right back at it again. And then years later, we, you know, didn't have an intervention. He went on his own and then chose to go on his own, and the outcome was sure. drastically different. And so I don't know. I just am not convinced an intervention yeah. is successful for a lot of people. It might yep. work for some sure. people. Sure. Depends on the person, too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You, know, yeah. Yeah. Kind of you, you could argue that was an intervention, right? Taking the keys away. Yeah, so, yeah. for sure. Number three, don't expect immediate change. We, we touched on this briefly earlier. This, it's not because Jesus is slow. It's because it takes us a while. And so I've had incredible patience with my own life, by the way, first in change, but also with our clients, is don't expect immediate change, but, but look for signs of change. So here's a couple of examples of things that I watch for in our clients of is there something changing? Is, are they getting some traction? One is that they stop making excuses for behavior, for use, uh, for whatever, and start to take ownership for their part of things. I look for that. 
Secondly, I look for honesty. Are they, and, and are they coming to me first? I'll ask the questions. I, someone mentioned this earlier, but I would rather have them come to me first because that shows, man, I really do want to change. So look for openness and honesty. And then this is kind of a, a church word. We throw it a lot, the word surrender. And our clients always ask us what that means. And I'm not sure if any of us could easily define what the word surrender to Jesus means. But for me, it just means letting go of my plans, my goals, my desires, my ways, and doing it some other kind of way. So I look for those kind of things. Are they willing to try something new? We have clients who like to have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of themselves yet, which is also true of the church world, by the way. So it's, it's really not one, it's all or nothing for Jesus. He's pretty clear about that. So I look for signs of are they willing to stop doing it their way and actually try to do it a different way. And, and then a lot of patience and a lot of walking for a period of time with somebody, uh, but don't expect immediate change or you're likely to get discouraged. I tend to get nervous when I see what looks like quick change because the parable of the seeds always comes to mind, right? Jesus is pretty clear that it looks like there's quick growth, but then that the cares of life choke it out. And so I don't even really like the quick growth. I would rather see slow incremental growth over time than quick growth. So learn to be very, very patient. Number four, support but don't enable. Uh, there's a big difference in the two things. And I'm going to give a couple of examples of what enablement might look like for an addict. But this is a fine line to, to, kind of, to kind of fall into. And here's some things to look for. Um, protecting from consequences, which could mean not telling other people about your son or daughter, their son or daughter's use. Could mean uh, trying to get them out of legal trouble. Some of the best things that have happened to our clients is they had to go to jail. Uh, keeping secrets, refusing to follow through with boundaries. So setting boundaries, but not holding boundaries. Uh, making excuses for them, avoiding the problem. Uh, it's, it's, let's be honest, addiction's a tough thing to face and work through. So all of these kind of make sense if you're trying to love your child, but they're really not loving your child. They're actually enabling them to continue in the addictive patterns. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm just... Oh, Okay. Uh, I can think of a lot of examples of parents in our program who have, who have done this for their children. In good intentions, good intentions, but actually made the problem worse. And one of the worst, one of the best things that can happen is a client having to face consequences. Any thoughts about enablement? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of ironic that the most compassionate thing you can do is let them face consequences, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow, yeah. Um, no, we have this analogy, and, and you might break down on the side of the road and they just get in their car, the odds are you're probably going to keep driving by. When you see that person get out of their car and start pushing it, we'll push the car with you, but we can't push it for you. For sure. That's good. 
That's a great analogy. That actually was a beautiful segue to the last one. Good job. That was perfect. <laughs> Don't work harder than they do. I learned this one the hard way. Uh, I tend to get very involved and very, very passionate about seeing people change. And there was a couple of guys uh, a few years ago that I realized one day I was working harder than they were. I was reaching out, I was meeting, I was doing all I could, and they weren't even really trying. And I would get so frustrated with that. Like, what am I doing wrong? And I would beat myself up for it. What did I do wrong? And I'm like, wait a minute. I had this revelation one day. I'm not Holy Spirit Junior. <laughs> and it's not my job to change somebody. Yeah. And it was so freeing. And I'm not going to work harder than somebody else will. Until, and you mentioned this, until they're willing to change, there's nothing I can do to get them to change. And so this was one of the most freeing things, probably in the last three years I've learned, is I'm not going to work harder than our clients are. I will do everything I can to help them, but at some point they have to want it bad enough to work on it themselves. And otherwise, I'm going to burn out really, really quickly because I can't carry all that stuff. Anyone tend to re relate to this one like myself? Okay, a few of us. Uh, just give yourself the freedom that you're not Holy Spirit Junior, that there are other ways he can reach out to people besides you, and I, I strive to do the best I can every single day, but I'm also going to be able to walk home at the end of the day and go, I did my best today. The rest is up to Jesus for tonight. And I can't carry the rest of it with me. So this was super huge for me. One last thing. Uh, some resources. Obviously, there's a lot of great ministries across the state. I'm partial to ours, of course. So Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge, also many other good ones. Um, if they're not willing to come into a program, there are things like Celebrate Recovery that are wonderful tools, uh, but just know there are resources. And there's some cards up here as well with some information on that um, that they can use to find some help. Um, one last thing. Uh, I know all our communities are slightly different, but just a little bit of a current state of, of what's uh, happening as far as substance abuse in our, in our area. Uh, alcohol has always been predominantly one of the big things for our clients. That's, a, that's a, a one of the top two probably. Uh, meth and heroin are probably two and three, and they kind of, they kind of change based on different years. I, meth was big for a while, and now it's more heroin. But the big difference we've noticed recently is fentanyl, and I'm sure you've all heard about fentanyl. Um, a couple of years ago, when we first started hearing about it, it was laced in things. So in, in fake prescription drugs, in cocaine, in heroin, et cetera, which is done both to extend the drug, but also to increase the high. What I've noticed in the past four to five months for the first time we have clients coming in who are just addicted to fentanyl. And so tend to be younger, uh, te you know, later teens, early 20s, but that is their drug of choice, which is so incredibly dangerous. Uh, uh, in a uh, pill or smoked, yeah. Yeah, it could be either, yeah, pill or smoked, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's a powder. It's actually an intense form of morphine. So uh, one little bit can kill a human being. It's, it's so intense in its, its effect. But it's, it, there's a high to it, obviously, as well, right? Which is what a client is going after, and also pain lessening. Uh, off the street. How long does a high last? No, it's a pretty quick hit. Yeah, which is why also part of the danger is it tends to be used more often. So it's a pretty quick hit. What about yep. vaping? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a gateway, honestly. Any sort of cigarette, any nicotine, any vaping is really a gateway. Uh, that's, again, that's the hardest thing for our clients to give up. It really is. Uh, we're a smoke-free program, and so it's like, it's hard. We, you know, chase vapes sometimes, but it's... I, I would look at that as a big danger sign, for sure. Any, well, yeah? Do you allow uh, people to come into your program that are on medication for bipolar? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Yep, we have medication assistance as well in our program. Because our son wanted, at one time, was going to go to Teen Challenge, but he was denied um, different, two different Teen Challenges because he was a level three in his mental health. Hmm, interesting, okay. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I, I thought, you know, there's worse people. Sure. I, I was, we were really discouraged when yeah. I uh, turned away to, to two different ones. So. I have a question for you. Oh. Um, we know somebody recently who went into college and he was doing 
Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, like Adderall. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. If you have any more questions, you can grab any of us. We'd love to answer any questions you have about our ministry, about our addiction. You guys have been awesome. Thank you.